It is really a delight to be with you all. Was here a little, uh, what, a number of months ago? Cannot remember exactly how long ago that was, just to meet with a few of you. I uh, met with some of you during the Sunday school hour and now here. And as Joe mentioned, I've driven over from Chicago today, but this is a little bit more my home turf, actually. Um, grew up in Michigan in several different places. Uh, last stop was Niles up the road. Uh, here just uh, a little bit. My sister lives over here in North Liberty uh, with with her family, so this is just kind of our turf, and it's always good uh, to be back uh, here as well. Uh, this morning, uh, in our message, going to be sharing with you really from one verse. We got a little bit of a start on it during the Sunday School Hour, but uh, we're going to look at it a little bit more carefully here in just a little bit. That verse is verse 120, Philippians 1.27. So I'm going to read just that verse, which is printed in your, your bulletin there. Then I'll go back and read the whole text to give us the context for what we are, are looking at. But what I want to focus on here is verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now the whole text. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, it is our privilege and joy to gather in your presence this morning to unite our hearts and voices in worshiping you, singing your praises, lifting to you our prayers, and enjoying fellowship with one another. But Lord, it is also our desire and our need to hear you speak to us through your word. Your word, which is truth, your word which is life, your word that blesses and builds up. Because whatever you speak, Lord, 
things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. Speak to us, Lord, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're focusing on this one verse. Um, If for no other reason than that for many years, this has been our denominational verse. A verse we have used to say, this is what we want to see characterize every church in our denomination, and by God's grace, every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We feel like this verse is just one verse that really communicates a vision of who we are as God's people. And what is it we are called to do and be as God's people? It tells us we are saved by the gospel, that we live by the gospel, we are shaped by the gospel. And that leads us to really the first point uh, that is here, is that when you look at just verse 27, you really, it doesn't take long to, to draw the conclusion, it's all about the gospel. Everything is all about the gospel. This verse begins and ends with reference to the gospel. It's like a sandwich effect uh, here. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel and strive side by side, which is the literal translation, for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is that incredible, wonderful good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the incredible reality that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to become worthy of it. He didn't wait for us to earn it or deserve it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's what Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 15, that he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to a whole bunch of people. This is the gospel. The incredible good news of God entering this world to redeem us by His grace. The thing is, what you do is you see that God, when He looked at the world, in all of its mess, all of its pain, all the sorrow and the brokenness that is a part of our lives and the world, and the rebellion and the sin and the evil that is all over the place, What did he do? What was his response? He did not send us a military leader. He didn't send us a doctor. He didn't send us a teacher. He didn't send us a politician, thank heavens. He sent us a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And on that Christmas Eve night so long ago, that's why heaven split open. The angelic host began to sing in praise because they knew what was happening. They knew what this meant for you and me in our lives. And they burst forth with singing and praise. The good news that our God has come to us. He's meeting us at our point of greatest need. 
And that's why when we think of this as good news, it's actually more than good news. It's more than just information that we're supposed to hear or even respond to. We are told in so many verses, like Romans 1.16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. It's amazing to me when I go through the epistles of Paul, how often gospel and power go together. He uses those words side by side a, a, a lot of times. And that's a concept we need to get it into our heads. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of power in our world. You know, in the business world, everybody says money is power. Scientific world, it's all about nuclear power. In the technological age today, knowledge is power. People try to accumulate for themselves political power. There's military power. All these different sources of power. Uh, in my day, there was this phrase, power to the people. There's the black power movement. It just goes on and on. Power, the, the capacity, the desire to influence, to make change, to this sort of thing, to happen in this world. And those things can be used for good, but too often they've also been used for evil. I would propose to you this morning that the gospel is the most potent force in the universe. Because it is the only thing that has the capacity to save and change a human soul. Nothing else has the ability to do that. Only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ has the capacity to save and change a human soul. To bring about real change, real life, real hope in people's lives. It's the only way. For us to not only experience this power, but to make a difference in our communities. And frankly, that's the only reason I'm in the ministry. That's why I'm here with you today. This is what I believe is the testimony of the scriptures. This is what I believe is the testimony of history. This is what my own personal testimony, and I know it's some of yours as well. I mean, just think through, just pick almost any example you want to. Let's just take uh, Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Here was this Jew who had become a tax collector for the Romans. And the Romans gave him access to Roman political and military power to collect their taxes. But they also said, the deal's this, you use our military power to collect our taxes, but you can collect whatever else you want for your own living. And he became one of the most hated people in his community. A Jew using Roman Empire to take taxes from his own people and to live off them. And he was a corrupt, selfish government official. Businessman, if you want to, in that regard. This is how he conducted his life until he met Jesus. And when Zacchaeus met Jesus... He was set free. His whole life was changed. And he not only did he profess faith in Jesus, he said, if I have defrauded anybody, I will give them back four times what I took from them. And I will give all the rest of my money to the poor. 
That's what we talk about. Not only somebody gets saved, but transformed by the power of the gospel. If we want to see integrity and change happen in the halls of business or government, it's going to come through the gospel. No other way. Take the garrison demoniac. Oh my goodness. This poor, wretched soul. It, just controlled by all of these demons, living a wretched life, running around the whole community, wreaking havoc, terrifying everybody. This person who is in the wretched clutches of evil until they met Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, the power of darkness is broken. He comes to life in Jesus. He is set free and he goes back home to tell others what Jesus has done for him. If we're going to see people delivered from the sin and the brokenness and the evil that is in this world, it only happens through the power of the gospel. Take the Apostle Paul himself, this religious, legalistic zealot who was so on fire for religion that he persecuted God's people even unto death. Until one day, he meets Jesus. When he meets Jesus, he's set free. His life is transformed. And he becomes the greatest apostle of the gospel the world has ever seen. Take somebody else from history. Take a man named Augustine. If you've ever heard of this man, Augustine, from the early years. This man who was looking for love in all the wrong places. Trying to find some way to fill the emptiness in his soul. Trying to find happiness and fulfillment any way he could and all the ways you're not supposed to. And he was coming up empty all the time until he met Jesus. And he was saved and his life was transformed. He became one of the greatest, most formative theologians of the Christian faith. And he gave us the phrase, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And he knew that from personal experience. Take John Newton. We just sang his hymn. This man, oh my goodness, could there be someone more evil and selfish than John Newton? A slave trader. Someone who took his ships to Africa to bring back slaves to the new world, half of whom would die in the wretched conditions of his ship. See, he didn't care. As long as he got paid at the other end, he could go back and get more and make a very lavish living for himself on the lives of other people until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he was set free. He was transformed. And he became one of the most beloved pastors in the English church. And he gave us this incredible hymn, Amazing Grace. How great the sound that it would save even a wretch like me. This is the power of the gospel. This is the testimony of scripture this is the testimony of history. This is the testimony of some of your lives. This is certainly the testimony of mine. The reason I'm here before you today is because years ago, God took this wretched creature who was looking for love in all the wrong places, going about it in all the wrong ways, trying to find the meaning and purpose of life until I met Jesus. 
Jesus set me free, changed my life, made me his child. This is why I do what I do now, because of Jesus. And this is what I hope there's not a single person sitting here today that you will not personally consider all of this for yourself. That Jesus gave his life. He suffered on the cross to take your judgment, the penalty that your sins deserve. He rose again from the dead so that you can not only have forgiveness, but have newness of life and experience the life you were created for and now redeemed to live. To have it in part now, to have it in full in heaven. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And once we have experienced this gospel, then he takes this, this gospel, this most potent force in the universe, more powerful than the, the Tesseract, if you're following the Marvel comic things, whatever, more powerful than anything in the universe. And he says, here, you take it, not only for yourself, but through you, this goes to the rest of our broken world. There's no plan B. It happens through you or it doesn't happen at all. Because this is the way I've set it up to work. And that is who we are. This is what we have experienced as God's people. This is your calling and mission in life. And this is why he says here in this text, only, or it says whatever happens, but there's actually one word in the Greek in the start of verse 27, only conduct yourselves now in a manner worthy of this gospel. Only, that is, whatever else happens, whatever else you do, whatever else you might think is involved in following Jesus, it really comes down to this. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it, it can be a little bit hard just to deduce uh, by itself sitting there in this text, but at least it means this means at least two things, and it means this, first of all, that the man, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is that you begin to treat other people the way Jesus treated you. At a minimum, it means that. That we begin to love other people the way he loved us. God shows his love for us and why we were yet sinners. In other words, you don't wait for people to earn it or deserve it. Your children, your spouse, your co-worker, your neighbor, your schoolmate. You don't wait for anybody to, to get their act together. You love as he loved you. You extend the same grace to others that he has extended to you. And just think that alone, how transformative that would be in homes and at schools and neighborhoods and workplaces and on and on. But it goes even beyond that, I think, to get a real understanding of what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We have to look at those initial verses, which is why we read them. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What's the whole point of staying here on earth? I just as soon as he says, go to heaven. That would be way better. But boy, the needs here are so great. And so as long as I draw breath, as long as I exist on planet earth, for me to live is Christ. 
and the dies gain. It's all about fruitful service in his name, he says. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. One thing I've noted about Paul, when you read Acts, when you read his epistles, Paul never got over the wonder and the joy of being saved. He never got over it. You know, he, he, all through Acts, which covers a, a number of years, you know, he's still at the very end testifying to what Jesus has done to change his life. You start reading the, the epistle of Ephesians, for example, and he just kind of goes ballistic. Uh, he, he starts in verse 3, and there's no punctuation until you get past verse 14, which means he breaks every rule of grammar. He fails Greek 101. You see, because he's so excited, he just gets running on. I can't believe that before the foundations of the earth, God set me aside to belong to him. I can't believe that in due course, he called me to himself. I can't believe that he forgave me of my sins, filled me with the spirit, gave me a hope and a future, has sealed me for eternity. I just can't believe. He just goes crazy. He does that all over the place. So when he says, for me to live as Christ, all of a sudden you know why. You see, for most of us sitting here, if we're to seriously think about this statement, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, that sounds pretty radical. It sounds pretty foolish. You actually sound a little bit like a religious nut. Unless you understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel and have experienced the gospel, it's the only thing that makes sense. That for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to continue on, it just means fruitful service until such time as he never deems that I'm done and I go to heaven. Which he did with Paul and he's done for everybody else, including Harry, Tim Keller, and the others just this past week. When you're done, you're done. You get to finally go home. This is what it means, folks. This is what we are called to. If you truly understand the gospel and are saved and changed, it's the only thing that makes sense. And it's why we come together in worship. This is why we gather here on a Sunday morning. Ultimately, it's to say, I want to come together with other people to sing praise to the God who's redeemed me. That's really why you come together. You might enjoy one another. Maybe you don't. (laughs) It's a certain degree. After a while, it doesn't matter. Because the reason you come here is Jesus. The reason you come is to give thanks and praise to God for who he is, what he's done in your life. And then we find ways to serve and extend that to other people. And that's where mission comes from. So worship is, 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 we're brought together for this by the gospel. And it's the gospel that then propels us outward in our communities like it did Paul in mission. That's why we give our money. That's why we pray for it. That's why we seek to share with others as we have opportunity. Now what does this actually then start to look like? Well, what it looks like here is when he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then when I come and see you or hear you, I will see you standing firm in one spirit, striving together, or literally, this will be important in a few minutes, literally striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what he says. Side, side by side. That's what it looks like. In other words, it's not just 
that as an individual, hopefully one of my prayers for you is that you will spend the rest of your life growing in the wonder and joy of your own salvation. So that you're like Paul, like, I just can't believe it, really. I guess it's for me to live as Christ then. That not only will that be characteristic of individual Christians, but that Paul is saying, I want to see not just individuals excited about being saved, I want to see you coming together. See, the gospel has a unifying and energizing capacity to it. It brings God's people together. They could be different ethnically, culturally, politically, any number of things they could be different. It's the gospel that brings us together. It has that unifying and energizing force so that we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if we understand Philippians and the terminology here, we'll get an even better picture of what this looks like. See, Philippi was a very unique community. It was not uh, a, a Greek community, even though it was named for Philip of Macedon, a Greek. It was no longer a Greek community. It was not a Jewish community. When we're told in Acts, when Paul showed up at, at Philippi, he couldn't find hardly any Jews. He had to go down to the riverside to find a few people washing clothes or whatever. That's about all that he could find there. So it's not Greek, it's not Jewish, it's Roman. And it's not only a Roman community, it's a Roman military community. And that's because years before, not actually all that many years, but years before, what had happened is that the forces of Octavian, the Roman general, came and settled out, settled in Philippi, made that their military center, because coming from the south were the forces of Anthony and Cleopatra. And on the plains of Philippi, the Roman forces and Anthony and Cleopatra, the Egyptian forces, had one of the great climactic battles of history. And of course, the Romans win. Elizabeth Taylor goes back to Egypt, and uh, the snake bites her, and it's all over, you know, kind of thing. That's kind of the way the story worked. This is what happened on the plains of Philippi, this great battle, that, and the Romans stayed there, and they retired there. So it became not only a Roman military community, it became a Roman retirement community. And so a lot of the terminology in the imagery that Paul uses throughout the book of Philippians is military. Because he's talking to military people who get this sort of thing. And that's what we're told is reflected in this statement, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because what he's referring to here is the great military strategy that allowed the Romans to take over the known world at the time. It was actually a strategy invented by Alexander the Great, who was the son of Philip of Macedon, for whom the city is named for. So it was Alexander the Great. It was refined by Julius Caesar and used by the Romans to the point that nobody could defeat them in battle. And what he's referring to here is what has come to be called the Roman phalanx. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you have some idea. Uh, of what we're talking about. Because you see, the way that they used to fight battles was this. Uh, you would get all of your people and you'd line them up on this side of the valley. And the Romans would come or whoever and they'd line up their forces on this side of the valley. And then you'd run into the middle of the valley and have a big fight. And whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest people would win. But the Romans had changed all of that. 
And so what would happen is, let's say the Goths or the Visigoths, we're going to let you guys be the Goths, okay? You're the Goths. And you guys come in and you line up and you do just kind of like what you always done. You get ready to run into the valley to have a big fight. You guys get to be the Romans. So you're the Romans and you line up on this side of the valley. But just before the fighting starts, the horns start to blow and the drums start to beat and you guys go into like a marching band routine. See, So you're marching in columns, you know, crisscrossing like that. You guys are watching the show going, what? You know, kind of thing. And they see the Romans march themselves into these boxes of men staggered all across the valley. Just hundreds wide, hundreds deep. The horns blow, another set of horns blow, and all the shields come out all the way around. They're custom designed to connect with one another and all overhead. And then another set of horns blow, and our little holes in the, the shields, these long spears or pikes come out. And then the Romans, when another drum start to beat, they start to, they don't run into the valley. They just start marching. So here you come. Chum, 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 chum. Because what have you got? You've got basically human tanks. Right? So here you come, just chunk, chunk, chunk. You guys have been watching the show all along, so you just kind of do, well, I don't know what they're up to. We'll do what we've always done. So first of all, your archers will shoot all their arrows. And here they come, just clouds of arrows uh, coming down upon the Romans. And of course, they're doing no harm whatsoever. They're just bouncing off all these shields uh, that they have. So now... You run across, you do what you've always done, you rush across the valley, you run into the middle, and you start hacking with your swords and your spears and this sort of thing, and you're doing no harm at all. Because the shields, they're from the bottom of the ground all the way up and over, but you're hacking the Romans, you don't do nothing except march. You just keep marching. Then you stop. The horns stop, the drums stop, you stop. And now your archers start with their clouds of arrows, and you're not doing, getting harmed at all. But everybody else is getting wiped out by these clouds of arrows. Then the arrows stop, and the, the shields drop, and the Romans come out fighting. And all of a sudden, the Goths realize that no matter where they are along the valley, they've been broken up into little pieces. And they have Romans coming at them from every direction, and they're wiped out. This happened over and over again. We're told by historians it got to the point that people heard about it, and when the enemy would line up in the valley and the Romans would go into their marching band routine, start marching across the valley, they'd just drop their weapons and run. Wouldn't even fight. They're like, oh, I see what they're talking about. I'm out of here. You know, kind of thing. This is the What was the Roman phalanx dependent on? Complete and utter unity and discipline. Everybody had to literally have everybody else's back. They had to work in complete synchronization. So if anybody at this end of the valley or that end of the valley, you got scared by all these goths because they're long, hairy people. Uh, they're painted in blue. They're yelling and screaming. If you got scared, you started to fight on your own, you could jeopardize the entire flank of the army. So you all had to fight in unison. You had to follow the leadership through the horns and the drums so that you worked in sync together. Do you see what Paul is trying to get across to the Philippian Christians? He said, not only do I want you excited about the gospel and living according to the gospel, but I want to see you, O church of Philippi, coming together and striving side by side for the gospel. And when you do that, you're invincible. Really, nobody can beat you. 
because I am the Lord. I go before you. And if you work together under my banner, you really can't be beaten. That's why I love what he goes on to say in, in the next verse, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See, the challenge of the mission field isn't the mission field. God is more than a match for the mission field. The question is whether Christians will work together. Whether they will strive side by side. That's why we organize ourselves into churches and presbyteries and a denomination so that we can combine time, energy, and resources towards the mission of the church. And when we do that, we can see the kingdom spreading throughout Elkhart when Heart City functions like this. We see the kingdom spreading throughout northern Indiana because the churches here partner, or in Great Lakes Presbytery, or the Midwest Alliance, or the VCA as a whole, because nobody can stop the church when it is doing what God has called it to do under the banner of Jesus. I go to a lot of places, like Sam, you're telling me about New England. What a barren place New England is. And so many people have told me, they just can't plant churches in New England. It's all burned over. Everybody's hearts are hard. This sort of thing, you can't plant churches in uh, New England. People say, oh, you can't plant churches in California. They're all fruits and nuts and whatever. They're just all over the place. You just can't plant churches. You can't plant churches in the South because they all think they're Christians, but they're not. So you got to get them unsaved before you get them saved. And then, so it's a complicated mess. Or Mormon Utah, which actually they have a point. I mean, it's pretty hard. Uh, and Mormon Utah. But the point is, no matter where you are, people try to say that they have unique challenges. Well, you do. But nothing is a match for the gospel of Jesus. And that's what we are called to be. That's what you are called. That's why, as I shared in the Sunday School, I'm excited about Heart City. Because you represent something beautiful and unique and powerful. Not in and of yourselves, but because of Jesus. And because he's given you this gospel, the most potent force in the universe. And if you pray and work side by side together, there's not a whole lot that can stop you. You can have a great kingdom impact in this community and working with the other churches in northern Indiana the Presbytery we can have a great impact there and we are as I was sharing about earlier my friends the whole point is this is what you are called to as God's people this is what I think we're already seeing at Heart City and what I exhort you to more and more because this is your identity this is your calling. So my prayer for you is that you will a people so in love with Jesus. So thankful for the salvation that is yours in him. Who you now are as his children. And that that joy and that excitement would cause you to come together more than ever. So that you become even more characterized by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I do give you thanks for Jesus. Thank you for the hope and the life that is ours in him. Where would we be without you? We would be so lost. There'd be no hope in this world. There'd be no life. But you have come to us. In Jesus, you have come to us and you have offered salvation. You have offered change. You have offered new and eternal life.
May everybody that's a part of this church have an infectious joy about them because of this. No matter what their personal circumstances might be, let this be a transcendent and infectious joy. And may, Father, they be known as a people so in love with you, loving and caring for one another, full of the joy of their salvation, who are having a redemptive kingdom impact in this city. I commit them to you to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.